Welcome to Scaling Impact, a podcast where we interview amazing social entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders on what it's like to scale impact and generate millions in revenue for their ventures and organizations. I'm your host, Savitra Wilson, the CEO and founder of Resilia, a SaaS platform that helps organizations increase capacity and enterprises that deploy billions scale impact. Up next, please welcome Aaron Dirks, founder and CEO of Joyful, Calvin Mackey, founder and CEO of STEM NOLA, Joy Owens, attorney at Oxfam America, and Savitra Wilson, founder of Resilia. Good morning, everyone. We wanted to bring this panel here today to talk about the idea of scaling impact. I am a huge fan of a lot of podcasts, as many of you may also be, such as How I Built This, or uh, Masters of Scale by Reid Hoffman. One of the podcasts that I was listening to from Reid Hoffman talked about the idea of scaling nonprofits and social ventures, which he felt was very important to understand the framework of how to scale these type of organizations. Oftentimes we think of large companies and corporations and businesses and startups who are for-profit that don't necessarily have a social entrepreneur or social innovation uh, foundation to it being scalable. And so the idea that we can also make money and do good or create organizations that are nonprofits that can also have a revenue generating arm is fascinating to me and is really the framework of most of the work that I have done to date uh, and throughout my own career. As we mentioned, my name is Savitra Wilson and I'm the founder and CEO of Resilia. And we're a technology SaaS-based company here in New Orleans that's seeking to bring capacity to nonprofit organizations and those who deploy capital capital uh, enterprises such as cities, private foundations, and corporations. I have three individuals here with me today who are building amazing organizations and working in amazing philanthropic organizations that are doing some of the things that I just talked about. And I want to talk with them today about how they see their work changing not only the culture in the city of New Orleans, but the ability for it to change everything that we imagine and every city across the country. And so I want to start here on the end with Aaron and then work our way down from some quick intro. So if you can tell us about yourself and what you're working on uh, for the next minute, that would be great. Sure, Aaron Dirks. I'm originally from Baton Rouge, been in New Orleans since 2001. I dedicated my entrepreneurial life in April of 2010 to social entrepreneurial endeavors uh, because I was blessed with the life event that I I was given the opportunity to think I was dying in the middle of the night and driving myself to the hospital, but it turned out I wasn't, and I got a new lease, and so that's when I made that commitment. That's where Joyful came from. Uh, That's where Posigen, my renewable energy business that I started in 2011, came from, and and that's what I dedicate today. Hi, my name is Calvin Mackey. Uh, I'm the founder and president of STEM NOLA. I'm a former engineering professor from Tulane University. STEM NOLA is a nonprofit that was created to expose, inspire, and engage communities in hands-on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We are trying to create a cradle-to-career pipeline, especially for low-income, low-resource communities. We live in a country that makes sure that that every black boy and brown boy have a basketball and football in their hand before pre-K-4, and no one questions that. My vision is to make sure that every boy and every girl in this country has STEM in their hands before pre-K-4 so that we can get the pipeline that we claim that we can never find 
if we start early and build like the NFL and the NBA does, we'll have the pipeline we need in the 10 or 15 years uh, time frame that we're talking about. Good morning. My name is Joy Owens. I am a civil rights attorney by training in Mississippi, and currently I serve as a senior policy advisor and program lead for Oxfam America, and I lead our work in Mississippi and Louisiana. Currently, we're working on a program called Good Jobs Mississippi, Louisiana, which is focused on creating good jobs and also creating policies that allow women and children and black women and women of color to thrive in their work environments. And so we have three buckets of work that we are working under. We're doing policy work, we're doing corporate engagement and workforce development. And also in that role, I serve as a partner, a funder, and I like to say partner because I think that's really important. We want to fund work, so we fund work in Louisiana and Mississippi. Great. And so to really get us kicked off, I want to think about something that Jeffrey brought up. He is a former professor at Harvard and really focuses on the idea of scaling impact. Uh, he talks about how social entrepreneurs have influenced the model for expanding organizations. And so how do you get 100x return with a 2x organization, right? How do you grow at scale, whether that's through capacity of the organization or through even having a small organization? His theory was growth through replication, but individuals said his ideas were too corporate and that orgs are not like McDonald's. There is no cookie cutter to replicate the work we do. In this context, how do you begin to replicate and scale what works? And talk about can you scale impact without losing the authenticity of the work as well? I'll start with you, Aaron. Yes, what I, what I found when in one of my scenarios will go from 100 to 300 employees in, in four months, um, what was critical to be able to replicate the human capital was a clear communication of vision, a clear communication of the reason behind the activity in the business, and the reinforcement and measurement that the sub-leaders were continuing that communication. Technology is improving very fast all the time to help in that process. There's some technologies I found that gamify the onboarding um, scenarios for employees where they can watch videos of founders and early investors on why they're here and wh why they started that business. So as you know, we go across multi-states, it was easier to communicate that. So that's what I found is in some of the critical aspects. Absolutely. What about yourself, Dr. Mackey? What I try to do is that I'm trying to engage communities. And a lot of times when we're trying to create a cooker-cutter uh, process, and lay it on top of you know, different communities, it doesn't work because every community is different. And what we realized that we had to do was create a process, and I, I beat my staff up every day, two off-beat patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles on a sesame seed bun. <laughs> so there's things that we do, and we do, we do them intentionally and consistently, but they're organic enough such that when we drop in another community, the community has input in terms of how it should look like, look like it for them. Uh, even when things like ed reform is dropping to New Orleans and say, we're going to put this on you, and there's been a lot of pushback because the community is not the same as the communities in New York. Mm -hmm. So therefore, like, we're STEM NOLA in New Orleans, but when we go to Baton Rouge, we're going to be STEM Baton Rouge because the community must own its own solution. So therefore, we've been able to enter communities, have people gravitate to us and allow us to grow because they see themselves in the space and believe that they have ownership of the solution for them. But what we have provided is the technical assistance and a process such that it is the same in every community, but their face is on it. 
Absolutely. And Joy, we can like reframe this a little bit for your work. I would love to know more about how you're expanding your work and what it looks like in Mississippi versus Louisiana. And I know Axiom, it's all across America. And so how do you see the work that you're doing carry through the organization's mission and how does that look in different regions or states? Actually, I echo what Aaron was just saying. I think it's really important to stop, start from bottom up, and that's one of the things that we're really intentional about, how we approach Oxfam's being an international organization. We're all over the world, but how we deal with problems or develop solutions in Mississippi and Louisiana is going to look different. So I want to make sure that when we do our work, we identify and connect with people locally on the ground who are doing work, uh, see what they're doing, see what their solutions are like, and allow them to be involved. One of the things I love to say is nothing about us without us. So connecting with people on the ground, allowing them to identify what works for them, and then developing grassroots movements out, and then hopefully transitioning that for up to our national policy federal work is what we do. And I think it works as a strategy both in Mississippi and Louisiana, making sure that you identify, like you said earlier, every problem looks different and every solution is different depending on the community or the population you're trying to change for or create that change. So just identifying local people who are doing the work and allowing them to be involved as possible is really critical when you're trying to create systemic change in nonprofit work. Absolutely. And so my next question is about accessing capital and resources, which can definitely be something that's very difficult for both entrepreneurs. I myself definitely know the pains of raising capital for a startup. I've also worked with nonprofit organizations who are seeking to raise funds as well for the work that they're doing. And so I want to talk about the ability to access capital and resources here in New Orleans um, and what you're doing, what you see as a solution for future capital. Um, we're almost like 15 years now post-Katrina, and we saw like a wave of funding come to New Orleans that actually gave birth to a lot of nonprofit organizations and a lot of businesses and entrepreneurial businesses as well. And now we're here today where we see kind of a, a birth of angel investors, but how do you feel about you know, what the climate is in New Orleans and what do you see for the future of how we access capital and resources? Two different measurements. One is how is New Orleans doing and it's from one point to the next, and how is New Orleans doing compared to other metropolitan cities and source of early stage capital and risk capital? The former is we were at zero, and we're at a good four right now. If you do a relative comparison to Austin, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, just there's just so much more liquid wealth that was created in risk environments that are just being put back into the ecosystems of risk, risk investments. And so, unfortunately for us, that's just not here yet. However, with our entrepreneurial companies that are coming and growing fast, we hope to see some of that very soon. And then, you know, three to five of those companies create another 100 millionaires that then put money back into risk investments and into nonprofit endeavors. And then that creates 20 more. And then the 100, then we can, I think we can get there. Yeah, so that's similar to like scaling. We have a lot to do as it relates to even scaling resources and the investment community here from what you're, what you're saying. Dr. Mackey. Well, when you're talking about impact, it's, it's a real challenge. I've raised money on both sides. I've raised money for a, another company that I have that we take uh, waste streams and convert to biodegradable drilling fluid and things like that. Uh, people are more receptive to have those type conversations because they can understand the technology and see the value. When you start talking about raising money to impact people and communities, my dad taught me it's very difficult to fight and beg the same people. So sometimes when there are communities that you want to impact and you got to convince the people that the people that you're trying to help are worth impacting, then they say, okay, if I give you this money, then you need to impact them this way. And you know that's where it's going to fail. 
that is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I was doing about 150 to 200,000 miles a year on Delta, because mm -hmm. I believe, you know, again, my daddy taught me if you want a buffalo, don't go to a petting zoo. So I see all New Orleans as a petting zoo. So I had to go out and hunt and kill and find the money wherever I found it. Mm -hmm. So that means I had to go find receptive ears that I didn't find in New Orleans and other places. And I still don't think New Orleans is there. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there's a lot of capital being put into the city and it being put into the hands of people that's always been traditional mm -hmm. in the same places, doing the same work, and people looking you in your face and really questioning your qualifications when you're like, wow, when you're doing the work. I mean, we've engaged 30,000 kids and 10,000 families people coming from around the world to see the work that we're doing here, and people still question it in the city of New Orleans. So you have to ask yourself, maybe it's me, maybe it's them. Whatever the hell it is, I ain't got time. I got to go and find somebody who otherwise going to listen. <laughs> Joy, I know people come to you for capital and resources and money, and so can you speak a little bit to that, or even, again, what you see for this space in accessing resources? Sure, I'm gonna talk about both, actually. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Oxfam does is a disaster relief organization. So we come in usually when there's something really bad that happens, such as Katrina. And our work is centered around economic justice, trying to rebuild and restructure. But when you think about nonprofit organizations, when organizations and big funders are coming in, they're dumping a pool of money, but that's not gonna sustain the organization long-term. So one of the things we're working on, we're building out, is developing ways for these nonprofits to create sources of revenue. And one of the things that we're doing with one of our nonprofits that it's a program where they train returning citizens, a workforce development program, and the uh, organization actually has recently purchased a building and they're actually selling things so they can generate a revenue for themselves outside of Oxfam's investment. So not saying that we'll pull out, but when the resources are restricted or they're not as fruitful as they once were, that they can continue to do their work. So I think being creative, when you're thinking about working with funders, we're trying to build out work that sustains the organization beyond our financial resource and develop a true partnership. And the second part to the question I can talk about now, if that's okay, um, is one of the things I like to tell people when I'm talking about funding as a civil rights attorney, and I worked with organizations where I needed funding, um, just to give you a little bit of advice on things that I think that's helpful, is when new nonprofits are starting up to make sure that you have the capacity to do the work that you want, because organizations who put investments into you, they want to see it materialize, and oftentimes people have great ideas, um, but they may not necessarily have the capacity to truly see it through, and that's so important when you're trying to get funding. Also, to consider, find, there's so many nonprofits. If you can tack on to another nonprofit that's doing the work to develop the relationships, that's super helpful. And then also the relationship piece of it. I mean, relationships are so critical in the nonprofit. I think across the board when entrepreneurship in general, but in nonprofit work, getting you into the room with the big funders, developing those relationships. And I think now with the advent of social media, people think that there's instant gratification and it doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of time to develop relationships. And I know I'm being long-winded, so I'm going to cut it off. But um, that takes time and just being thoughtful when you're trying to develop those relationships. Because relationships with funders will get you a long way um, rather than just like cold pitching things. So that's my advice there. Absolutely. I was talking to uh, Chris Moe with Waiter recently, um, and Chris always talks the fact that he raised $20 million all from Louisiana investors, and my story is complete opposite. The majority of my investment came from the East Coast, West Coast, and um, between Atlanta and Chattanooga, and I think that the difference is like relationships, people that you probably have gone to school with or 
um, so on and so forth. And so like the network, um, and then also having spreading more of this belief uh, that investors can invest outside of things and invest in technology, which is important I mean, not along traditional, more uh, de-risk paths. I think that's a part of building the ecosystem here uh, in Louisiana. Uh, one of my investors, who is Kevin Lynn, who may be around here for no year. Uh, I know he'll be back soon. Um, and we often talk about, like, how do we get capital from investors here in Louisiana? And he says, Louisiana has the money. And so there's this belief that the money isn't here. And he's like, oh, no, the money's here. The money's here. We have to uh, work and create the culture that does give and, and invest in companies um, and so I want to ask a specific question for to Dr. Mackey. Um, so I believe that the next wave of nonprofits will be led by social entrepreneurs. And I believe because of that, they're going to think of innovative ways to actually operate and drive their organizations um, by creating um, profitable revenue channels, whether that's selling products or something that people want, tangibly what people want. And so Dr. Mackey, I feel that STEM NOLA is a great example of having done that. Um, I'm curious to also know, I'll tag this on, was that because that was always the model or did you do that out of survival? <laughs> so, survival. Uh, so, just to give you a little background on Stemnola, my wife and I took $100,000 and we self-funded a nonprofit. We have two young kids that we were raising. I always wanted my kids to be at least STEM literate. My son came home one day, he said, Daddy, my friends want to know why I'm, how I'm so smart. And I said, uh, did you tell him you do these things in a garage with your dad? And he said, yeah, dad, but my friends need this. So my little son realized that he was bright because he had access to things and people that his friends did not. And if his friends had access, they would be just as smart as him. So we took the things that we were doing in a garage, created a platform that we could lay on top of the city and engage the entire city in terms of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Since I had four STEM degrees, I've been an engineering professor, I was able to create 30 different modules, STEM modules, hands-on projects that kids can use. Now we've created curriculum, and when it comes to find out that people really want this stuff. So we start doing the activities in the communities. The 30 modules that we developed, we, we, we aligned them with the economic drivers in the community. For example, we live in New Orleans. We almost just drowned, but the schools are teaching the kids about volcanoes and earthquakes. What the hell? So we develop a model around, <laughs> around flooding and levees. We're getting a billion dollars a year. We're going to spend $50 billion a year in the state of Louisiana on coastal restoration. I just stepped off the Restoration uh, Protection Committee. So if there's companies here getting $100 million contracts to build levees, look like somebody should go to them and convince them that they should invest back in a community to teach the kids about levees. So now what we're about to do, we've done about $1.5 over the last year, and about a million of that is earned revenue. We've taken the intellectual property that we've created, and we're about to spin that off into a for-profit, then take this for-profit, have a raise on that, such that now we can take this, this intellectual, I mean, this think tank model and replicate it in different cities and have these franchisees buy from the for-profit company. Then the, the nonprofit get residual back from the intellectual property, and that's our sustainability. I just, you know. People, priorities change. You may fund me today as a nonprofit because you care, but tomorrow you say I'm doing something else. So I wanted to create something such that we can have this runway, this cradle to career pipeline, consistently funded, such that a kid saw it when, when he or she was in kindergarten, and they see it when they're in 10th grade, they see it when they're at Tulane somewhere, then they see it when they're out in the, out in the industry. So that's how we've been, uh, been, been able to scale, uh, and that's how we've created the sustainability, and hopefully this year, 
we're on target right now to do over about $2 million. And, you know, with the companies, I looked at the companies, and there's a lot of boxes companies need to check. And I started to think about it, and I said, look, a lot of times we're looking at companies from our perspective. I said, let me look at the companies from their perspective. And the solution that we've created checks a lot, check a lot of boxes for the companies. For example, the local company, Entergy, we're now Stemnola powered by Entergy, a, a solar naming rights. Why did I sell it to Entergy? They're the only Fortune 500 company here. They need to show the politicians and the ratepayers that they're, they're investing in a community. So now we've, we're giving companies opportunities to invest in communities that align with their values. The challenge with things like, like these tech companies, we need more of you to all to understand that to he or she that much is given, uh, much is expected. And if you want the population and you want the entire community to be STEM literate, we need you all giving back just like the big companies. I mean, every dime helps. Uh, STEM is, and technology is very, very cost prohibitive. So we, we just, AT&T gave us $50,000 last night to create a coding and technology center in one of the most challenging places in New Orleans. We're gonna start teaching kids Python and Raspberry Pi and Arduino coding, you know, in, in third, fourth grade. But in that part of the community, people don't even know what we are talking about. So the sustainability is very important if you're gonna create a runway. Yes, thank you. Uh, Aaron, this question is for you. So there is much talk about how we empower locals to financially benefit from the tourism industry, particularly here in New Orleans, although you can see it all across the country in high tourism cities. In many ways, and really almost a model for Joyful is creating a space for the creation of new social entrepreneurs who can create new pathways um, to income streams. How do you see this happening at scale and what do locals in cities like New Orleans stand to gain the most from platforms like yours? There's nothing more magical than seeing someone earn money doing the thing they love to do. We carry around supercomputers in our pockets with our credit card information, our biometrics, our video cameras. And it's really not that hard to empower someone and connect them with people that are looking to get more meaning out of life so that they get a shot to do what they love to do for some money. Let them charge what they want to charge. Let the market decide who's good or bad. Look, you still got to be a star. <laughs> you know, to, to bring value, you got to... To earn value, you got to bring value. So, uh, however, there should be a marketplace where people can freely enter it, easily input their talent, and have people engage into that commerce and and pay cash for it and other potential forms of currencies. So that's my endeavor. I'm certainly hoping that that lives and and, and is vibrant. And so we'll be experimenting with that this year in a kind of like a joyful lab, impact lab, where we'll unlock some young kids and see if we can make them a few thousand dollars every Saturday. Sound like a partnership. Yes, it does, it does. <laughs> uh, Joy, so this question is for you. Um, how do nonprofits gain access to large, large organizations? You spoke a little bit about this earlier and suggestions on how to build the relationships that you speak of to secure funding um, for big ideas. Uh, we have like two big ideas and not only ideas, but those have individuals who's taken those ideas and began to implement them, to begin to create um, structure for them, uh, to begin to create um, funding model for them and grow them. Um, what are your thoughts and anything that you want to add related to your work around that? Sure, um, I'll 
expand upon what I was talking about earlier. Um, so when I was talking about relationships, as someone who's worked on both sides, I've worked for nonprofits trying to get funding, and now I'm in a position where we're actually funding work. One of the things that I thought was really critical when I was trying to develop out and get resources for the nonprofits that I was working for local was figuring out whose room I needed to be in, in to learn, who was doing the work, and how could I get on their calendar to learn more about how they got funding. So I would identify like a national organization, for instance, ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, they do really well with raising money, figure out who their fundraising people were, set up meetings. Sometimes it may have been a little stalkerish trying to get, get up with people, but um, just getting their time and learning from them how to navigate this world because oftentimes what I see now is when you get to the foundations of the larger nonprofits like Oxfam and you know the foundation for Coca-Cola, Kellogg, they typically work with like the the well-established, well-known nonprofits. And if you're trying to get in the room and sell a new idea, that can be really, really hard. Sometimes I don't want to say impossible, but it can be very difficult just to even get get in the room. And so what I've learned is like building that out, similar to what I was talking about, like the work in general, starting with someone local that you know you have a personal relationship with, asking them to, can you help with their work? Can you see how your work intersects each other? Because once you get in those rooms and have those conversations, it's easier to get access to the people who are in positions to give you money if you have that relationship. And like I said, relationships take time. I think that that's just the thing that has to resonate with people sometimes because you want to have it happen right then and it doesn't work that way. Some of the big funding that I was able to get when I was an attorney trying to get it took years. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. Um, and then once I got in the room and I had the relationships, then it happened very quickly because I had the relationships. You know, it didn't take years. It took months. Or me just saying I had this idea here's my strategic plan, this is what I, this is the goal, this is the objective, and this is the outcome I anticipate. But being able to get in that room and say that to someone, that takes time. So I think just developing that relationship out and being very strategic, identifying people who are in positions to put you in the room with people who are connected, um, that can be very helpful. Absolutely. And so we have um, about two and a half minutes left, and I want to end on this question. Um, from the largest organizations to the smallest, we've seen failure at all levels, right? From the Gates Foundation to the smallest organizations that we often know of, um, that initially it may have started off for good, right? How is how has failure shaped your work and made you a better, more thoughtful leader? Anything you would share for others seeking to do work that ultimately looks to transform communities? I can start with that one. Um, so I think failure has taught me to be more empathetic and to extend grace to others. Oftentimes in this work, when I'm identifying new nonprofits, there's a lack of knowledge. And so they don't understand how to do things. And so I think failure has made me more aware that you know, extending grace and being empathetic and trying to teach someone the right way what they did wrong is very helpful because everyone makes mistakes. Failure is really normal. It happens, um, even though we like to act like it doesn't, but it does. So I think it's made me more of an empathetic person as I approach funders or grantees or other organizations that I'm working with um, and, and being able to teach them and say, hey, well, this is, this. Let's, let's go back and revisit this and this is the way you should do it now. And then I've what I've learned is when you teach people, because a lot of times the failure, the intention not to do wrong. It's just a lack of knowledge or a poor choice that led to like some disaster happening. And oftentimes when you're able to approach someone with grace and empathy and educate them, then you can correct it and they can do better and still do good work. Sounds great. Uh, my bad. I'm an engineer. I got three engineering degrees. So engineers look at the world differently. So when I entered the whole entrepreneurship thing, you know, man, I did a whole lot of stuff wrong. You, you got it? So what it brought me to 
understanding of, especially with the communities I work with, with the, with the people I work with, is that everybody's teachable, reachable, and redeemable. Uh, because I've been redeemed my, through my mistakes. People say, look, that was wrong, but you know what? We're going to give you another chance. You need to do it like this. So uh, by going through that, now I can look at people and always give them a second, a third, another chance like people have given me. Uh, I was blessed to learn the lesson uh, not, and didn't destroy me that uh, it was through failure that I learned my greatest lessons in life. It was through challenge that I grew my greatest muscles. So I learned, but I, got, I realized you got to fail often to get those lessons, but figure out how to fail fast. Don't drag that sucker out. <laughs> you know, you gotta, Let's you gotta, go. like, that's right, that's right. Uh, so fail often, fail fast, uh, and remember that if you didn't, if you were never dirty, you wouldn't know what it felt like to be clean. If you were, if you were never lost, you wouldn't know what it felt like to be found. If you, if you weren't tired, you wouldn't know what it, what it felt like to be rested. So embrace that failure and then learn from it and, and cut it off. That wraps this week's episode of Scaling Impact. Subscribe, share, and let us know what and who you want to hear from in future episodes.